If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, or scroll there as it may be, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, as we continue our study in Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. In Georgetown on Q Street, there is an old church building. A century ago, it housed a Methodist Episcopal Church, which when the denomination began back in the 1700s in England, was one that was committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would differ on some points of doctrine, but the Methodist Episcopal Church preached the authority of the Bible, preached salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Over the years, that denomination was absorbed into the United Methodist Church, which began to drift from the centrality of the gospel. The building on Q Street was eventually sold, and today it houses something called the Church of Two Worlds, which describes itself, and this is their quote, as a spiritualist house of worship where believers communicate with the dead in the spirit world. I had never heard of spiritualist house of worship, but they go on in their description to say spiritualists believe that the deceased can continue to grow, the deceased can continue to grow and evolve in the afterlife, and as such, we can learn a lot from communicating with them. It is appointed unto man to die once, and after this to face judgment is actually what Scripture says about that. But I point that out because that is a long way from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you drive around any major city, older city, you will see old church buildings with similar stories, places where congregations once thrived on the centrality and the supremacy of God and his truth, the gospel as being preeminent to ministry within those local churches. And now many of them are empty shells or mostly empty in which uh, public speaking, if any, has little resemblance to biblical truth. One of the purposes of discipling a congregation, of building into a local church, is to guard against that. It is to establish foundations that are deeply rooted in God's truth and that stand the test of time holding fast to what has been taught. We see this in scripture, the the emphasis on digging deeply into doctrine, the sufficiency of scripture, uh, the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the truth of salvation by grace through faith, all of these things that a church must embrace and and dig deeply on and make its foundation so that it does not drift from what is central to keeping God's word at the focus. First Thessalonians is a textbook in this work. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to a young church for the long haul. He is seeking to establish them and ground them in truth and in the application of that truth so that it will hold them fast for years to come. This is a a, a young group of believers, a new church, relatively speaking, in a major city in a Roman Empire that is opposed to them in so many ways and on so many levels. There will be challenges that they will face to their teaching and to living out the Christian life. It was essential for Paul to ground them in sound doctrine to give them good theology, but also to equip them to apply that sound doctrine, to live out the Christian life, to live it out in ministry. So knowing the truth and knowing what to do with the truth, knowing how to live in the truth, to proclaim like Christ his gospel, to live in a Christ-like way. Paul began that foundation in Thessalonica. We've already seen some of the background of his going there and his preaching there and establishing that local church. And then 
he writes back, and this is where we are this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and, and, and we see a passage like this as it continues Paul's equipping of this church, helping them to grow in ministry. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 12. There are a couple of things that he uses repeatedly in these verses. When you are reading through Scripture, one of the things you, you should do as you're observing Scripture is look for phrases, words that are repeated. And in this passage, there are some phrases that are repeated a lot, as well as a word that shows up a lot. And the phrases are, you know or you remember. We're going to see that a number of times in this passage where Paul is urging the Thessalonians to think back to when he was with them. You remember when we were with you. You know what we were like when we were with you. You, you have firsthand experience of what our ministry looked like in your presence. And so you remember and you know will come up a lot. The second clue that helps us to understand this passage is he uses not or nor. The word not or nor uses to, to negate, obviously, and he uses it repeatedly in the passage. I want to read this whole section, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, and just note those instances of you remember and also the word not. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Phrase you remember, you know, you saw, and the word not or nor, never even, clearly come up again and again in this section of Paul's letter. We know from Acts 17 how Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, how they traveled over to Macedonia, and they came there. There was no church established. They began to preach the gospel. They started in the Jewish synagogue, where there was at least some sort of level ground on which to talk to people about the, the, the God of, of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible that, that they knew at that point. They saw people come to faith in Christ. They began to establish a local church. And within a very short time, there was intense opposition they spent maybe a month or two in Thessalonica before uh, Jewish hostility against them arose and they were chased out of town. First Thessalonians is written sometime after that. They traveled down to Berea and then as far down as Athens. And from Athens, Paul sends Timothy back up to Thessalonica with the, the idea of at least seeing where the church is at, if it's even still in existence. They knew full well that it was under persecution. They knew that there had been just a short time of establishing the church, and so Paul sends Timothy 
to go and to see how the church is doing. Timothy spends time. He comes back. He reports the church is standing firm. It is, by God's grace, established in truth. And he has exhorted the the Thessalonians and is now giving this good news now back to Paul. And that's where this letter comes, this letter of 1 Thessalonians. It is now Paul encouraging and exhorting the Thessalonians, encouraging them that God has, by his grace, enabled them to stand firm and exhorting them to continue to grow, to not stop where they are, but continue to grow in their walk with Christ. That's why this section, the portion I just read, can seem a little bit confusing because there is a a tone that sounds a a little bit defensive in, in Paul's writing. When he starts talking about, you know, and you remember, you saw what we were like, you know what we did. Um, there, there were all sorts of false teachings going around, itinerant preachers who went around with all sorts of messages at this point in history. There, there were also, Paul knew very well, the, the local Jewish hostility toward the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there was Gentile idolatry that was in Thessalonica. And so all of that would come in and would challenge the church and, and would bring opposing beliefs against the gospel. And not only against the gospel, but they would try to undermine Paul. The idea being that if you can destroy the credibility of the messenger, you can probably then undermine his message. You you can show that this was not something believable and that this gospel should be dismissed. So Paul, when he speaks like he does here in chapter 2, is not defending himself out of a sense of pride. We see this throughout Paul's letters where he he gives these kinds of defenses. It is to uphold the, the truthfulness and the credibility of his ministry so that therefore the gospel is ultimately upheld. It, it is to say, you know what kind of people we are, you know what we taught, and it is ultimately to help guard the gospel from coming under false attacks from these teachers who would come in and lie question that arises then on on chapter 2 is, is this one of those defenses? 1 Thessalonians is so full of Paul loving on the Thessalonians. He is encouraging them. He is speaking to them kind words. It's it's one of these letters where he doesn't have to introduce himself in the the very beginning as an apostle because he's not not being demanded to, to kind of prove himself. It's not a question of his integrity or credibility. And so what is happening here? In these verses, verses 1 through 12, I I would suggest to you two things. There is protection and there is instruction. Paul knows very well the tactics of the false teachers. He already knows that they chased him out of town, and so he knows that these young believers are going to hear accusations against him. There are going to be false teachers who are going to say, oh, Paul, yeah, he's, he's here for money. He came because he, he talks sometimes about offerings for the church in Jerusalem. That's just him taking money. He wants fame. He wants attention. And, and that these kinds of attacks are going to come and are going to question the, the message that he preached. Paul knew that. And so he is preemptively protecting the flock. He is warning the flock and reminding the flock and essentially cutting the legs out from underneath his opponent's arguments before they could even get very far. He is protecting the flock by saying, you you remember how it was when we ministered with you. You know what we told you. You understand this teaching. Don't be misled by these things. We are not these individuals. But more importantly, I think this is also instruction. Scholars who've looked at philosophers who wrote back at this era will tell you that one of the approaches in in teaching and passing along instruction was called the antithetical approach 
we would basically call it compare and contrast. It's when you say, not this, but this. And, and ancient philosophers would do this in a lot of their writings where they would say, I did not do this that they did. I did this. This is what some have taught you. Not me, I taught you this. This is how some have acted. No, I haven't done that, I did this. And, and, and it's fairly common in historical writings to see this sort of using oneself as kind of a role model, if you will, to say, you're free to look at my life and see what I did, because I didn't do that. I did this instead. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's not only describing then marks of his ministry to them and saying, this is what my ministry looked like, but he's at the same time instructing them on what ministry should not look like. These are the things that should be warning signs. You've got marks of Christian ministry, but you've got warning signs of false teachers. Some came to you this way, teaching in this manner. I did not. I did this. So this is instructive for the Thessalonians, and I want to encourage you that it is very instructive for us. Because we're being taught not only how Christian ministry should look, not only how our service to others should look, our discipling of others, our parenting of our children, our coming alongside other believers and exhorting them, our seeking to evangelize the unsaved, all of that, that ministry, we're not only getting a glimpse into how it looks, but we're also getting warnings into what it should not look like. It should not include some of these things that Paul clearly says here, we did not do this. So let me start, first couple of verses, we're gonna do, there's, you have this in the notes in your, uh, in your bulletin, there's five contrasts that we're gonna look at. First one's in verses one and two. For you yourselves know, brothers, our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There's the contrast. Did not come to you in vain, verse 1. Rather, we came to you in boldness in God, the power of God in verse 2. So it's vain versus boldness. The Greek word that's translated as vain is kinos. It's the idea of empty hollow, not having any kind of substance. And so when he says our coming to you was not in vain, it's not saying that because there was a church born, it was all good and it wasn't in vain. He's saying when we came to you, it wasn't with emptiness. It wasn't with powerlessness. It, we, we weren't coming in, in a timid sort of way to you. And he, he makes it clear that that's his point by his description of, in fact, you remember what happened in Philippi. This is all the more important when you realize that he had just come from the city to the north, which was Philippi, and how he was treated, he and Silas in Philippi, is described in Acts chapter 16. When they preached in Philippi, this crowd of opposition was stirred up, and Acts 16.22 says the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates, the local governing officials, tore the garments off Paul and Silas and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. Paul in verse 2 here in 1 Thessalonians says, we were shamefully treated at Philippi. He, he's not talking from a personal sorrow point of view. He's saying, as a Roman citizen, we were shamefully treated. We were, by the local officials, beaten and imprisoned without ever given a chance to present our case in court. We weren't tried on anything. They simply did crowd control by virtue of beating us up and throwing us in prison, and, and that stopped the crowd. And so he says, we were shamefully treated. I, I don't know about you, but getting beaten up and imprisoned for something I had done might make me think twice before the next time I do it. And even in this case, 
If I got beaten up and imprisoned for preaching, the next sermon, there might be a temptation to at least be a, a little more timid, to, might, to maybe change your words or, 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 or try not to offend and to be a little bit more careful. And so that's why Paul says, when we came to you, it wasn't coming in vain, even though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated. What he's saying is, we didn't come powerless and timid when we came to you, despite what had just happened in Philippi and, and what led us to come to you. We still didn't come in a weak and timid sort of way because we came to you in the power of God. We came to you in boldness. The, the word boldness has the idea of, of freedom, speaking freely, uh, of being open. And he's saying, we, we still preach the same gospel with the same conviction. We still put the truth out there. And we were unafraid because of ultimately the power of God. If you've been around a local church long enough, if you've been a believer long enough, you've, you've served someone that, that maybe hasn't responded well. You, you've tried to be gracious to someone. You've tried to love someone, and in return, you got some sort of evil response. You got something that was less than kind in a response. You've, you've in some way been hurt when you were thinking you were trying to do what was right. Or you served well, and nobody ever seemed to notice. Nobody ever bothered to show appreciation and you just felt like you were never acknowledged or you did something in, in Christian ministry and you invested time and energy and then somebody else came and completely undid it. Said, nah, I got a better way to do it and, and undid everything that you did. The temptation in those moments, if we're honest, is to say, okay, fine, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> I, I learned my lesson from that. If I'm going to invest time and energy and that's what I get in response, why should I bother? Paul said, regardless of what happened before we came to you and the attacks even that we faced when we were with you, the opposition that started when we were with you, regardless, we did not lack strength. We did not weaken our conviction. We didn't get timid because we rested in the power of God. In the end, there has to be a place where we, we come to the conviction that Paul does of, I, I'm not taking this personally, because, as he repeatedly will say in this passage, we declared to you the gospel of who? God. It is, it's the gospel of God. I'm not, I'm not declaring to you the message and teachings of Paul, and so then if you throw me in prison and beat me, then I, I feel like you've rejected me. I am preaching to you the gospel of God and the power of God by the working of his spirit, and I am trusting him to provide the results. Therefore, if you reject me and you do this, that's between you and God. And I can rest in that, and I can rest and, and still be bold and, and still know that God will accomplish what he intends to do. His word will not return void. And so he says, we, we didn't... We didn't come in some way that, that was just empty and powerless and weak. We came with boldness in his power. When we believe that our ministry is in God's name, that it is by the equipping of his spirit that we are teaching his truth, that we are, as we are ministering to our, discipling our children, as we're discipling someone at Starbucks, as we're sharing the gospel with somebody at work, as we're in a plugging in class and we're teaching... Ultimately, our rest is in the fact that this is God's work and God's spirit that accomplishes his, his work. And so we can rest in that, but we can also find great power in that, in ministry, that he is at work through that. So there's the first contrast. Second one starts in verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Let me stop there. 
Second contrast, Christian ministry should never rely on words or deeds that are false, impure, or deceptive, but we must speak and serve as those who are tested and approved by God. Ultimately, our our speech and our service comes before his testing, which is why then no impurity, no error, no deception. So the message that we proclaim, the motives behind our ministry, the manner of our living, all need to reflect that. The message itself, the message of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again, crucified for sinners and taking our penalty and the call to faith and repentance, that may cause people to stumble. People may object to the message itself. They may be turned off by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the reality of the gospel message and its conviction. They should not be caused to stumble or be distracted from the gospel because of something that's going on in our lives, because of something they see how we do things in some some sort of uh, duplicitous way, or there's some sin. They're, They're seeing something that just doesn't match up with the words that are coming out of our mouth. They should not be caused to stumble by the manner of our ministry or by our motives. We are not sinless. We are imperfect. Yet Paul uses this phrase here that's really helpful, I think, for us in verse 4 when he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. It's not a special word for an apostle like Paul. This is something for all of us in the sense that the word has the idea of approval that comes through testing. It is examining something, testing it for the, for the purpose of approving it. To be approved by God then is to embrace his examination of our lives. To seek to be approved by God is to desire that God see our lives and that our motives be laid bare and that, that God be the one who ultimately stands as judge over us. We are ambassadors for the king and we should desire his approval. That's why when we come to the communion table in just a few minutes. Um, when, when Stuart leads us in communion from 1 Corinthians 11, he'll remind us that it, it says there that we ought to examine ourselves. The point of that is taking time quietly and asking God's spirit to help me see, are there, are there motives, are there things that in the way I'm doing stuff? It, have I got broken fellowship with somebody else because of something in my heart? Is there something that I'm doing that, that might cause someone else to stumble? Help me to see that, God. Help to expose those, those areas in my heart that would cause problems for others. We should welcome God's examination. One of the ways he does that, one of, one of the means of that accountability is through brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we're, we're ministering alongside one another and rubbing up alongside each other because that, that gives us the opportunity to, to ask questions of each other and to exhort each other. And, and, and if there is a, a question of maybe error in teaching or, or perhaps motives that don't look completely pure, we can have a brother or sister who comes along and says, hey, just wondering about this, this area. Can I, can I encourage you in this way? that we would minister together and be accountable in that way. So verse four, the next one, the next contrast. Let me read again verse four. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Third one, Christian ministry should not be aimed at pleasing man through flattery, or winning man's favor as a means of satisfying greed, but should always strive to please God. Take a look at 
much of what passes as Christian ministry on television, and you will find at least a fair amount of it that looks an awful lot like flattery. Looks an awful lot like celebrity ministers whose primary aim seems to be building bigger and better, larger, just trying to do everything they can to win people over. And the temptation when you, when you are most focused on building your own kingdom then is to flatter. It is to say things that are warm and fuzzy and that, that make everyone happy and feel good and, and feel like it's, it's all about chasing their dreams and living them out. And this is the happy place where you come and fulfill all your dreams. Because that's what flattery does. It, it, to, to make people feel good to not speak truth to them. And relate it to flattery then is this underlying motive of greed. You can go all the way back to Aristotle in the fourth century BC and find written warnings saying, if if, if you're gonna sit under a teacher, make sure it's one who is a friend to you who will speak truth to you and not one who is a flatterer to you. If, If all that teacher will do is flatter you, then they're probably out for some other gain. They're probably out for money. Find one who is a friend who is willing to lovingly and graciously, as Proverbs would say, wound you, but, but with grace and the idea of forgiveness and the, and the hope of bringing you to a better place, not just someone who will tell you, oh, you're great. Everything is just fine if that's not true. Paul wrote, you know we didn't try to flatter you. There, were, there was no hidden self-serving motives here. In fact, verse 4, when he describes it there at the end of the verse, we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. There's these two present tense verbs here, pleasing and testing. Present tense meaning this is, this is ongoing. This is the continuous state of mind for ministry that it should be for believers. A, a continuous state that says it is not about pleasing man, it is about pleasing God because God is the one who is testing my heart. God is the one who is continuously the one to whom I must answer. Therefore, I'm desiring to please him. That doesn't mean that, that, that we be cranky and nasty and, and, and out, you know, just trying to nail people right and left because we're just, we're just going to show them what God wants wants, we can do this graciously, kindly, just like we would want others to do to us, to help us to see if there's sinful areas, to come alongside and to encourage and exhort, but not compromise, because our goal ultimately is to please God. The reality is in Christian ministry, we'll probably see the most fruit and some of the best relationships from striving to please God. Those are the the, the places where he so often works, but from time to time, that'll mean people reject and they walk away. Ultimately, it is God who is testing us. And so our character and motives in ministry should always, we should be aware that they are always under his watchful eye. Verse six, next contrast. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Christian ministry should not be haughty or demanding, but should be marked by sacrificial love, like that of a nursing mother caring for her own children. Verse 6 is Paul emphatically reinforcing what he has just said, but, but just stressing it all the more. Nor did we seek glory from people. 
The word glory in the New Testament more often than not has to do with God. It is something that God possesses. It is God's fame. It is God's great reputation. As we give glory to God, we are acknowledging the greatness and the renown of who God is. But the word itself could also be applied to human beings for those who were seeking glory for themselves, those who were seeking personal esteem or reputation. They wanted to be well spoken of. Paul says, listen, our ministry was was never striving to try to be well-spoken of by other people. Sure, we want to have credibility, and we want you to speak the truth about us. And if the truth is that we had credibility and integrity, then, then good. We're happy to hear that. But we're not out there seeking acclaim. When he says, not seeking glory from people, verse 6, from human beings... What he's saying is, I'm not looking for glory from you, I'm looking for glory from God. I want my life to represent the glory of God. I want that when you see me serving, when I'm talking to you about Christ, when you see me living out my life, I want you to see something that's different there. That that, that I can help you understand is, that is is God's goodness. That, That is me just hoping to make God famous because he's the one that has rescued me. He's the one that's made anything of my life if you see anything good in that. He says, I'm not worried about getting glory from man. He raises an interesting point here where he says, as an apostle, we could have, we could have imposed some demands on you. An apostle is one who has personally seen the risen Savior and been commissioned into ministry. We know for Paul that is on the road to Damascus when Jesus Christ personally commissions Paul into ministry. And Paul is reminding them here, that's a, that's a pretty unique spot to be in. And, and, and if I was less than, less than bowing before God and seeking his glory, I, I could certainly maybe use that and say, hey, you know, Jesus talked to me and Jesus called me into ministry. You, you ought to revere me for that. You ought to respect me on account of that. And he says here again, I, I demanded no such respect from you. I didn't call on you to revere me because I'm an apostle. I simply want God to be glorified in and through me. In fact, he says, my attitude was not demanding. It was not this sort of haughty, I'm better, haughty, I'm better than you sort of perspective. He says, in fact, you want, you want the picture of what I'm, I'm striving for in ministry? It is this universally understood picture of a nursing mother with her child, caring for her child. It, it is that, that picture that immediately we go, oh, I get that. that. That image of a new mom with a little baby holding that child. We just see care and we see love and we see protection. Some of you I know didn't have that necessarily and you're growing up. Mom wasn't maybe the, 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 the living example of this but we certainly get what the picture is, what the ideal is, what he's describing here. And he's saying this is what, what ministry ought to look like. It's not, hey, I'm, I'm special. I'm the apostle. I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm such and such. Fill in whatever the title is. I am ministry leader on this, and therefore respect me because of who I am. He says the picture should be like a nursing mother with her child, somebody who just so cares for those people who, who are involved, engaged in ministry with that individual that they just love them, and they want the best for them. That's, that's what the, the mom's desires. That's why it says here, affectionately, we're so affectionately desirous of you. We long for you. We love you. What we do is because of that. And out of that stems this desire to see you grow. It means ministry that is sacrificial. What can you do to help that person grow like Christ, who may or may not be grateful for it? What sacrifice can you do in ministry? And 
sacrifice in raising your children. I mean, if you've done any parenting, you understand that. The giving of yourself. And that's, that's what the, the picture is to remind us of in ministry. Are you giving of yourself rather than angling for what you can get in return? Last one, verses 9 through 12. For you, remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Christian ministry should not be selfish, self-focused, or self-protective, but should be focused on living in a way that glorifies God and urges others to do the same. Building on this point that he's already made in verse 6 about not making demands on you, Paul says, in fact, we went out of our way to guard against accusations. We, we didn't want to let even a hint of he's here for our money get into it. And so Silas and I worked at all hours every day just to make sure that we supported ourselves so that we would not be a burden to you. We wanted at no point for you to go, these guys are just mooches. I mean, they're just here to come and see what they can get out of this. Don't they ever work? Paul says, no, we, we dismissed that right from the start. We, we ministered to you, we served you like a nursing mother, but we also worked so that we would intentionally guard against any accusations. They didn't want anything to get in the way of ministry. They didn't want to put anything, at least from a human perspective, that would be easy for someone to go, oh, there's what's going on here. There's the actual motive. This is the, the above reproach of, of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, being above reproach so that nobody can make a charge that sticks. And that's what they're trying to do here. Ultimately, such careful behavior by Paul and Silas was not to gain the applause or recognition because he's very clear about this. He says, what you saw in verse 10, you are witnesses, God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. We did what we did, first because that's what God requires of us and that's, that's our privilege in serving God to be holy and righteous and blameless, but we also did this so it would be instructive for you. By living this way, we're able to now write back to you and say that was a model for you of, of holiness and righteousness. So we lived in such a way that our character would, would stand in support of our words so that you would see what you heard from our lips lived out in our lives. That's why Paul said, even when we're firm with you, even when we exhort you, we do so as a father does to his children. In other words, we do so for your good. We do so because we care about you and we love you. Paul in Ephesians 6.4 will instruct fathers to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What he's saying here in verse 12 is just an application of that. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, just like a father does with his children. That's the description from verse 11 to 12. And so what he's saying is that, that like a father who instructs his children, so my my purpose in ministry, my coming alongside of you and discipling you and, and, and speaking to you, all of that, all, even charging you, calling you to account, is, is for the benefit of helping you to grow in godliness. It is because as a dad, I want you to grow. I want you to understand truth. I want you to excel in it. And so everything that I've done, I've done it with that purpose of your benefit. There's a very personal dimension to this. He says there in verse 
um, 11, for you know how like a father with his children we exhort it, then each one of you, verse 12, each one of you. It's a very personal nature, Paul says, to ministry. It's not just mass sort of preaching to a crowd, but alongside that should be also individual care. There should also be that we, we exhorted you individually. We cared about your life individually. We were interested in you as a person as well. Our ministry, how we care for others, how we disciple others. Is it as a father to a child personally investing in people? And then there's this future orientation to what he says here. that I think seems especially relevant on Father's Day. On this day when we think of the work of dads, it is a reminder that the investment of a godly father is for the future. That what a godly father is, is called to do is to discipline and instruct for the long haul. It is to, to work into your children's lives truths that, that help them and shape them for years to come. So when we discipline and instruct when they are young in the present days, they are not always warmly embracing those moments, shall we say. When we have disciplined, they are not always saying, Father, thank you for that discipline that will be good for my whole life to come. We don't get the immediate praise. And that's not what we're doing it for, right? Because we're doing it for that long-term investment so that when they become teenagers and young adults and, and, and husbands and wives and parents, that those truths that we invested back then begin to show themselves in their lives, that we've hopefully modeled something for them that they can now carry on into adulthood. We're doing so with a view to years ahead, teaching and correcting and praying for and striving for our kids so that one day they will walk in godliness before him. And so it is that Paul here in verse 12, ultimately at the very end of this passage, says, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. At the end, Paul's looking forward. Because for the Thessalonians, life isn't good in, in the human sense of things. I mean, we're, you get to 2 Thessalonians, and, and it's clear from Paul's writing in 2 Thessalonians that one of the questions in between 1 and 2 was, yeah, okay, this is all good, but it's still hard. When is Jesus coming? They, they still want to know when the Lord is going to return because life is difficult. And so even here, Paul's encouraging them and saying, this is all for something greater than this. This is just short. The kingdom of God is eternal. And so as I exhort you and charge you and encourage you, it isn't just for the moment, even though hopefully it's of ministry to you in the moment, but hopefully it's an investment in the future. Because one day we will be together in the kingdom of God and we will worship him. And so our calling and his choosing of us and the ministry that grows believers along the way, all of that is looking forward. All of that is longing for the day when we in that kingdom stand before our king and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The, the, the self-centeredness of the world just looks to the here and now, what I can get in the present. Christian ministry looks to the future. That's why the, the, the rewards may not always seem all that, that great if we're going to go by earthly standards. That's because we're, we're building into people's lives for a long term, for ultimately standing before God as faithful and complete. It goes back to what I said at the beginning. 
We, we, we work to establish local churches and groups of believers in truth for the long haul so that years and years from now, people still look at Grace Bible Church in Lorton and say, that church just preaches the gospel. I hear the gospel every time so that 40 years from now, if the Lord tarries, people still see Grace Bible Church as a place where the word of God is held up, the truth of God is proclaimed. And that's what he's calling us to, and that's what he's planting here in Thessalonica. Is an investment that will run for the long haul. That's not just for temporary gain, but is for what God has planned for his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I do thank you for this church. I thank you for your work in the life of this church. We have seen you sustain it, equip it, provide for it, minister to and through it, and Lord, we are grateful. Lord, help us to be a church that would stand fast on your word and your truth. That the gospel of Jesus Christ would be central to our ministry. That calling people to repentance and faith would be the heartbeat of what we do. That loving other people, that serving alongside them would be such a tremendous privilege. And Father, that you would gain all the glory from that. That we would endlessly be thanking you for your faithfulness to this body of believers. Encourage and exhort us to excel still more, even as we continue to read this letter. Thank you for your work that you have done in our midst. Thank you for what you continue to do. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.